Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. The call to confession is from Proverbs 30, verses 24 and 25. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. There is a current song on the contemporary Christian music playlist called Dream Small, in which the artist Josh Wilson encourages listeners to tone down their dreams a little bit. When I first heard the song, I was a bit annoyed by Wilson's mantra to dream small instead of having a grandiose plan to do it all. This mindset seemed pessimistic and contradictory to the great and awesome God we know and serve. Furthermore, it is contrary to American optimism and the pull-up-your-bootstraps independence. However, the more I listened to the song, the more I began to appreciate its message. Be faithful in the little things, be content, be wise. As the sage Eger provides yet another list of items to consider in order to make a point for reflection, he settles on the topic of being wise by taking notice of the little things in life. He provides four examples from nature that illustrate valuable life-guiding principles, the first of which is the ant. At first glance, It is a simple bug that can be easily destroyed. It does not resemble the strength, valor, and beauty that we so admire. However, upon closer examination, this minute, weak creature is seen as industrious and prudent as it follows the God-given instinct to collect food during the appropriate season. This example illustrates a common error in our day-to-day thinking. Too often, We act like the Israelites when they chose Saul to become king by looking only on the outward appearance instead of considering his wisdom and character. In addition, we ought to despise the little things of the world and consider them unimportant. Or, we fail to act in obedience to God's calling because we think we are too weak or unprepared. The Apostle Paul reminds us that God's power is made perfect in weakness. We need to care for the less fortunate, appreciate the menial moments, and be faithful in the little things. As Josh William continued to say in his song, keep loving, keep serving, keep listening, keep learning, keep praying, keep hoping, keep seeking, keep searching. Out of these small things, we watch them grow bigger. The God who does all things makes oceans out of rivers. A tiny rock can make a giant fall dream small. This truth reminds us of our need for confession. Please kneel if you are able and join together as we confess our sins. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your great mercy, your abundant grace, for the preservation and example of your saints in the past and today. What a great time of 
preparation and reflection it has been to hear and sing and your praises and come to you in confession. Thank you for ordaining these things and for bringing us together. And thank you for preserving your word and for the relevance that it is for us today as we read through it. We do so to your honor and glory. We do so asking that your spirit give us ears to hear and eyes to see the new the new truth. To see from a perspective that is your perspective and not ours only. And so bless us and prepare us to receive your truth today. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So, so it's good to be here. Thank you. We, are, we um, want to take a look at God's word today. Uh, and just to reflect on what he's, what he's doing, not just today, but uh, throughout history. And as we do so, uh, we want to just think about um, this building that was began, the construction began in 1172. And it was part of a, a four-part monument uh, for this local city in Italy. Um, there was a, a cathedral, there was a bell tower, there was a cemetery, and there was a baptist, baptistry, all to be built uh, and um, as they began building um, upon completion, it's uh, over 200 feet tall. It took 200 225, 226 years to build it. It had been interrupted. The building construction had been interrupted by, about, uh, by two wars. And so it was delayed a little bit. But after 226 years, it was completed. However, it had a uniqueness to it. It was one of three local buildings that developed a lean due to poor, to a poor foundation. Um, the, uh, the poor foundation was actually discovered after the second floor was done. It was leaning a little bit to the south. Uh, but the engineers and the architects decided, well, let's keep building and see what happens. Um, and uh, build it to its uh, current uh, seven to eight stories now. And in that process, as they added more floors, it actually shifted from a slight southern tilt to an extreme northern tilt to its most extreme level where the top was 15 feet beyond the foundation. That was a five and a half percent lean. And we know it, right, if you figure it out, that is the leaning tower of Pisa was simply to be a bell tower. It was not to be the center of a touch. In fact, the magnificent cathedral still stands there. Anybody ever heard of the Cathedral of Pisa? No. It's as magnificent, but next to it is this oddity, this anomaly that attracts thousands, millions of visitors every year. And many times the weird, the eccentric, the odd, the anomaly is what gets the attention, and too often it also becomes the norm. Thankfully, not all buildings are built with a 5% lean, but other architects actually have tried to replicate or outdo the lean of the Tower of Pizza. In fact, a number of Germans, this was a thing for them, the 
Germans, they started building some buildings to see if they could get a greater lean than the Tower of Pizza. So while many man hours and much money have been invested to stabilize the towers, engineers and architects all agree that actually a deeper, more stable foundation would have prevented the tower from leaning at all. Apparently, shallow foundations, sand, clay, and deposits from the local rivers do not make for good building foundations. We can experience a similar situation in our own lives, and we have seen these similar things throughout history. Poor choices or selfish decisions are made that eventually lead to a leaning that is out of plumb and challenging to correct. And too often, the decision is made to try to stabilize the situation with various jigs and supports rather than correcting the root problem and shoring up the foundation. While this approach may prove to be eventful and of interest to people and attract many people, a plumb life built on a solid foundation is what is right and most effective. The book of Amos records such an event. The nation of Israel had built its culture on some shoddy ground, and it began to lean in an ungodly manner. When God stepped in with his plumb line to examine their progress, he found they were in need of some serious corrections. Instead of manipulating the situation, God goes to the root of the matter and works to shore up the foundation. We're going to take a look and examine Amos chapter 7 to see how God worked through Amos to help Israel measure up to God's plumb line. But before we get into the text, I don't know the last time you thought about Amos or uh, spent any time in the minor prophets. Uh, typically those aren't where we do our devotional reading. Uh, right after not reading Leviticus, we tend to not read the uh, minor prophets. But uh, Amos, of course, is one of the minor prophets, not because it's unimportant, because primarily of its size, right? They, they collected 12 smaller books and called them the minor prophets as opposed to the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, which were longer, right? So major minor. Amos was a farmer. He was a herdsman, sheep, a, sh a shepherd, and also he raised figs, right? So he was, a, he was out... Uh, doing his farmer thing and enjoying the land, and God called him to be a prophet. He becomes one of the two prophets who, one of the only two prophets who actually go and prophesy in Israel. Remember the kingdoms have been split, split between the northern and southern kingdom, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. He was actually from Judah. He lived south of Jerusalem, sat on the, uh, on the edge of the great desert, so uh, near, near the... the um, southern part of Israel, and he lived and prophesied somewhere around 790 B.C. Um, and uh, while he was from Tekoa in the south, he ended up ministering in Bethel, which is uh, in the northern kingdom just north of Jerusalem, kind of in center Israel. And if you remember from your Old Testament studies, Bethel was the center of worship for the northern, one of the center of worships for the northern kingdom, right? Back when the kingdom first split, Jeroboam the uh, first had this great idea that, uh, well, we're on we're our own kingdom. We should have our own center of worship and things. So he makes two golden calves, sets one up in Bethel and sets one up in 
Dan and built shrines and all of the supporting structures that should be there. And he holds a ceremony and uh, he says, um, he says, we're going to do this, uh, that we're going to make this change from what God had set up for uh, worship because um, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's too, you shouldn't have to travel all the way to Jerusalem. Uh, it's going to be easier if we give you a convenient local place where you can go worship. And so he says, here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you from the land of Egypt. Very much like the golden calf that Aaron had erected out at Mount Sinai. And uh, Jeroboam thought he was doing a good thing to make life easier for his uh, people, for the people. But he had missed the point, right? When you study the feasts and the calendar, right? There was purpose to that, right? The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was, was celebrated in Jerusalem on the 15th day of the first month and the feast of tabernacles was on the 15th day of the seventh month so he's like well well, we could we could do that something to that so he had the feast on the 15th day of the eighth month right so the mindset is it's not there's not a strict order here so what 15th day of the first month seventh month eighth month jerusalem bethel dan really doesn't matter as long as we're worshiping right but what was so important about the 15th day of the first month when you look at the big picture. Well, when you check God's calendar, he had a big event scheduled on the 15th day of the first month in 33 AD. What happened on the 15th day of the first month in 33 AD? Christ was crucified. It wasn't man's option just to change it. God, that was put in place by God for a specific reason, as a, a reminder, as, a, as a, 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 a look of faith to ahead what was coming. And jo- Jeroboam thought he could change that. So here we have the start of the northern kingdom on shoddy ground, right? It was a weak, um, it was a weak foundation, and it's headed in the dr- wrong direction. They've already started the lean, and they should have recognized it Early on, but they continued to build on that. Now, move 200 years forward, right? And we come to the second Jeroboam. And in all accounts, he's a great king, right? We know from our study, there were no good kings in Israel, right? They were all, there were a few down in Judah. But, there were, but from a human standpoint, Jeroboam the second was a great king, he reigned for 41 years. Can you imagine being in charge for 41 years? Uh, and uh, was very prosperous. The, Israel was prospering. They had been victorious in battle. Um, it, he uh, um, was... Um, things, things were going really well. He had, he had defeated a number of, of, of enemies. The economy was on the rise. Uh, trade in olive oil and wine and horses had made them very prosperous. And uh, on the military side, they had defeated Syria. Uh, they had recovered Damascus. Uh, and, um, and Amos 6 actually gives quite a bit of background on that. So Jeroboam, if, if they had taken a, a poll, his approval ratings would have been through the roof. 
he, he went, man, everything was going really well. Uh, all the old King's programs were being undone, and uh, things were getting better. Uh, so that's when Amos comes onto the scene and begins to prophesy. And it's this kid from Judah, this guy from Judah coming to Israel and uh, giving news that was not so encouraging. Right? If you look at the book of Amos in an overview, his, he spends his first part of his ministry, his prophecy, really talking about all the surrounding nations. So that would have been okay, right? You come in and say, oh, look at all these other nations. And God's going to judge them. He's going to judge Syria. He's going to judge Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon, all Moab. They're all going to be judged. And the Israelites are like, both Israelites and uh, those in Judah were like, whoo yes, finally. They're going to get their just desserts for all the things that they've been doing. Then he changes, Amos changes his conversation to pronouncing judgment on Judah and Israel. Well, that starts to become a little bit uncomfortable, uh, but uh, he, he goes through and just lists the things that Israel had done, how they had begun that, that lean and further and further, right? They had, they had despised the law. There was immorality and, and blasphemy prevalent in their society. Um, and so uh, he was, God was talking about how he was going to judge them and send them into captivity. And that takes up the first six chapters of Amos. And then here in the last three chapters, seven through nine, uh, he's, God gives Amos some visions of the future that he uses to uh, add some details to what's going, what's going to take place. So the first three visions primarily concern the judgment of Israel. Uh, someone's going to take, there's going to have a, 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 a near effect, right? A soon effect. And then uh, there's going to be some future effect as well. And then the last three visions are concerned with the judgment and the restoration of Israel as far as in light of the day of the Lord that will be coming. And in between these two sets of visions, there's this interlude of a kind of a private moment with Amos and his interaction with uh, the prophet of Amaziah who, who, who works and represents King Jeroboam. Uh, so uh, this chapter 7, we see first kind of God contending with Israel for their, uh, for their acts of disobedience. And then in the second half of chapter 7, we're going to see that Israel, through Amaziah, is going to contend with God that he has been unjust and should not be listened to. So we're going to look at the, uh, briefly look at the three visions. What do they say? Take a look at what God's message was, and then uh, consider the opposition to God's message to see if we can learn a little bit about measuring up to God's plumb line. So let's take a look first here in verses 1 through 6. It says, This is what the Lord had showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. Behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, O Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord showed me. Behold, the Lord was calling for a judgment by the fire, and it devoured the great deep, which was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. 
And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, says the Lord God. So two visions right off. One of a uh, uh, locust or grasshoppers that are going to come in. The, it was during harvest season. So the first cutting is taken for the king and for all of his kind of tax purposes. And then on the second cutting, that's for the people. So that's the one that was going to be impacted. Right? That was not, the, the people were not going to have food for their, right? like the ant stored up food for the winter season. The people were not going to be able to because the grasshoppers were going to get it. And, and Amos prays and, and asks God, intercedes for Israel, and he says, okay, we're not going to do that. Then the fire was going to come, right? There's going to be a great fire. And it's interesting, not only was it going to burn the land, but it says it was going to burn up part of the great deep, right? The great deep in Israel's, in the Hebrew literature, often refers to the, the Mediterranean Sea. There's going to be such an intense fire, it was going to go down to the coast of the Mediterranean and burn up some of that as well. There's going to be a severe, severe fire there. And once again, uh, Amos interceded, said, Lord, this is just way too much. Oh, come on, this is, this is your people, right? And God relented and said, uh, no, well, I won't, I won't do that. And so we see in this, in these two visions especially, and as we study all the scripture, uh, God's mercy. Right? As he's working with his people, as he's working with the nations, a God's mercy is incomparable. It is generous. Think, think of just all the different times throughout scripture how generous God was with his mercy, right? What, what was the rule in the Garden of Eden? If you eat of the tree of life, you'll die. But instead he was merciful and shut out Adam and Eve and let them live an extended life and have children. Yeah, it was hard. You know, they had to experience all the consequences, but they weren't immediately killed. Think of Egypt, right? That great awful country that oppressed God's people. How merciful was he to the Egyptians? He gave them not just one, not two, but ten plagues to show his power, to help them understand. We think of all plagues, how awful. But that's God's mercy at work. Demonstrating who he is and the time of repentance is still available. Think of Amos' time period. How long have, had God withheld any judgment against Israel as they were day by day, month by month, year by year, leaning further and further away. 200 years, 41 prosperous years under their latest king. How merciful had he been. And now he had decided to, to bring a judgment. And because of Amos, he relented twice. So we learn... That God is a very merciful God. His mercy is incomparable. And we should see all things in light of God's mercy. Secondly, we're reminded again of what James tells us. That the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Nothing wrong with prayer change. But it only takes one fervent person to get God's ear and to do his work. We can do that. We, we come together in prayer, but just the prayer of one. And as Amos intervened, as Moses intervened, as different prophets intervened, 
Even Christ Himself is an intercessory in prayer that touches God's ear and reaches God's heart. And in spite of, even though God's mercy is greatly and generous, great and generous, we must also remember God's justice must be satisfied. While His mercy is great, He needs to balance His mercy and justice. There's going to be a consequence. It may not be immediate. It may take a week. It may take a decade. It may take a bicentennial. It may take a millennium. But God has a standard. God has expectations. And God's justice must be met. It must be satisfied. But even in that, it's great mercy. Because when you read the end of Amos, in spite of the income impending judgment, Israel will be restored again. God shows mercy again to them in that regard. In that regard. Uh, speaking on it, writing on this passage, John Calvin says, When God defers punishment, he does not in vain threaten, but waits for men to repent. And that if they will still go on in abusing his patience, they will have at least to at last to feel how dreadful is the vengeance which awaits all those who thus pervert the goodness of God, who hear not God inviting them so kindly to himself. You must be reminded that the, the message of God is not always a kind, simple message. It might be a, a tough consequence, a tough judgment, but it's still God's mercy. God's mercy is incomparable, but too often we make it incomprehensible. And so by heeding God's message, the truth becomes more salient. And that's the second part that we see here in Amos's message. As we've seen God's mercy expounded and demonstrated, now he's going to focus in on his message in verses 7 to 9. He gets a third vision. It says, The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass over them. The high places of Isaac will be made desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. So, a third vision comes. And this time there's no argument. Amos has no argument to offer. Because it was, God had said, he said, this, this, this is what it should be, right? You know, the plumb line, you got a little string with a heavy weight on it, and you hold it. it, only, it once you stop the swinging, it only does one thing, it holds straight. And you take it up against the wall, or take it up, and you check it to see if, if it's straight or if it's leaning, right? The Tower of Pisa, we would hold it off the top, and at the bottom, it'd be 10 to 15 feet off center. And that's what, God did. He stood on the building of Israel, hung his plumb line, and they had quite a lean. And God says, that's not good. That, that, uh, that cannot take place. And so while the plumb line helps us build a straight wall, it also helps us determine when we should maybe start over or put in those corrective message, uh, uh, measures. And so God's message is relevant Right? It's where Israel was at that moment. And they needed to hear where they were and what needed to, to, be, um, to be corrected. 
And it was very clear what God was going to do. He, he gave three points of how he was going to go about what his corrective action plan was, right? He was going to uh, tear down the high places that they had built. That's where their error was. He was going to get rid of all their worship centers. And he was going to take out Jeroboam's family. They were no longer going to, to rule. Um, and so it was very clear. And it had to be real, proclaimed. Amos was called. And that was the message that was given to him. And, and he had to go say, Amos talks about that way. This was the message given to me. And I, it has to be said. The prophets talk about it in that way. The apostles Right? What is the, our great commission? You know, go, right? It's a command and, and it needs to be done. And so as God's message is relevant, it's not always going to be palatable. It's not always going to be warm fuzzies and uh, sweet, huggy God. Right? Sometimes there's, there's truth out there that um, we need to hear in order to wake us up. And that's where Israel was at this point. I mean, imagine being Abraham. Had waited 90 plus years for a son. And one day the message comes from God, you need to go kill your son. That's a hard message to, uh, to receive. But it had to be done. It was God's word. Think of the apostles and the word that they got from Christ. That... Their deaths were impending. They weren't going to live glorious, stardom lives. But they would have tough lives that would end in some kind of, most of them, horrific torture or death. But all that message too, I mean, the message itself that transcends all this is the message that Christ was going to experience all that, right? I mean, before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son set together and said, here's our plan. And it included the fact that on the 15th day of the first month, the Son would be crucified in a horrific way. And the message of the Scriptures is to point to that. And so we need, that's a message that needs to be proclaimed. Both the good and the hard need to be proclaimed together. And we need to understand that when we do proclaim that message, it is going to be opposed. We need to have the mindset of a salesman. Right? As I look for work and I talk to people, it's like, you know, sales, sales looks, has great rewards, right? Man, you can make tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. Of dollars. But think of what you have to experience to get those sales, right? They tell you, you got to be ready for a lot of rejection. You talk to 100 people so that 10 to 20 might talk to you about something so that maybe one or two might buy into what you're doing. You know, a 90% rejection rate. That's hard to handle. But you have to be committed to that. It's, there's opposition, and, and that's what Amos is going to experience. That's what the prophets experienced. Christ himself experienced opposition. I mean, we have to say, if we could just be with Christ, you know, everything would be great. Think about the people who hung out with Christ. In the end, none of them really believed them. Until the Spirit came. They were all afraid, anxious. They gave up at that moment of, of His crucifixion. It just, 
Calvin says, because of this, we need to, uh, all teachers in the church need to learn to put on two feelings. To be vehemently indignant whenever they see the worship of God profaned. To burn with zeal for God and to show that severity which appeared to all the prophets whenever due order decays. Right? We need to have this righteous, it's okay to have a right, right, righteous anger. When God's name is profaned, when His word is not being heeded. There's this anger, this righteous anger. It's like Christ when He went into the, the Lord's temple and saw it being profaned. He wasn't like hugging people. He wasn't just knocking on the door of their heart saying, let me come in. He was turning over tables. He was making a mess of things. And I'm not saying we need to go turn over tables and make a mess of things. But there's this, there's, there's this anger that comes when God is being prepared. It's not, that's a great distinction to ask yourself. Am I angry because of what's happening to me? Or am I angry because of how God is being offended here? And we are called to be angry when God is being profaned. On the, at the same time, we are to sympathize with miserable men whom we see rushing headlong into destruction and bewail their madness and interpose with God as much as is with them in such a way that the compassion render them not slothful or indifferent so as to be indulgent to the sins of man. Right? That righteous anger leads us to compassion for them. They're not getting it. They're not hearing it. They, they need God to intervene. So we go to God on their behalf and say, God, like Amos, right? God, <laughs> relent longer so they can see your goodness. They can understand your right. Give them more opportunity. And so since God is merciful and he has given a relevant message that must be proclaimed to all people, we are beholden to heed his calling. And that's what we see in the third section here with Amos. It's a long interlude, so I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights of it. But uh, Am- Amaziah goes to King Jeroboam <coughs> and says, are you aware of this Amos guy? He's walking around the kingdom saying bad things about you. He's saying you're going to die, and all the people are starting to get upset, and there's chaos. We've got to stop him. Now, we don't get Jeroboam's Response, but we do get Amazon or Amaziah going back to Amos and say, "Hey, you just got to stop it." You know, he calls him. He calls him a seer. Kind of a, that was his. Uh, the the seer kind of was a um, little term that talked about more one who's paid to do their prophecies, right, and to itch the ear of the king or whoever wanted the prophecy. Kind of like the oracles in Greece, and right. They'd go and get some money and then they would make the person feel good about themselves. That's kind of the guy Amaziah was. He, he was a priest, but he wasn't a priest in the order of Levi. He had been set up there in the northern kingdom by, by Jeroboam and that line of kings. So they were, he was a false prophet. And he's telling Amos that he's kind of the false guy. and He should go back home. Maybe some people in Judah will listen to him. But his message would not be accepted in uh, in the northern kingdom. And uh, in, in closing, Amaziah, uh, Amos says, well, that's fine. You can tell me that. But God's called me. Right? I was, a, I was a shepherd. I was a fig grower. 
uh, minding my own business, minding my flocks, minding my, my uh, orchards. And God said, go. These people need to hear. They need to understand where they've, uh, they are, where have they erred in their way. They have not done those things that they ought to have done. <clears throat> and they've done those things they should not have done. It's time for confession and repentance. And they need to hear that message to do that. And so Amos gained great confidence, right, in God's calling. God's calling empowered Amos to go and speak that message, even though it wasn't palatable. In fact, not only does he tell Amaziah that these things are going to still happen, but then he actually made a personal prophecy against Amaziah, telling him what he's, he's going to die, and his kids are going to be killed, and his wife's going to become a prostitute. Man, that's a tough, tough message, but when we read the rest of the story, that's what we find out happened. Jeroboam's kingdom came to an end. His family no longer was on the throne. Israel was sent into captivity. Amaziah just kind of disappears off the face of the earth. See, we have to understand, as Amos did, that when we are called, we are going to deal with the consequences of the past. We're not walking into just some new situation that's all of a sudden started, right? There's, there's nothing new under the sun. <clears throat> and there might be national issues. There might be problems that our friends have done or our family or our own personal decisions. We are, ideas have consequences. And we are in that moment of time based on those choices and those consequences. And so we can't sit around thinking, oh, I have to go back and change everything to correct this. We go to work on correcting what God tells us to do, what he calls us to do. So we have to be willing to understand that there, we, are, we are here as the consequence of other decisions. And we will be opposed. Others will try to dissuade us from continuing on our mission. I mean, that's as, that's as old as the Garden of Eden, right? God had given a pretty clear message to Adam and Eve. Here's how you should live. Right? You can, you can enjoy everything. Just don't eat the fruit of the, that tree over there. And did, they, did someone try to dissuade them from that mission? Yeah, the tempter came to Eve and said, oh, that's not really, that's not what God really said. Right? He changed it a little bit. And Amaziah had done that too. He changed the message of Amos when he went to the king and instead of, because Amos was saying the kingdom is going to be taken away and <clears throat> Amaziah made a personal side. Amos is out to kill you. You're going to be killed. Uh, and it wasn't um, Jeroboam that was killed is actually his son. So the message gets twisted a little bit. There's this effort to dissuade you or to dissuade the, the faithful from continuing on. I mean, the tempter even tried this with Christ himself, right? At the very onset of his ministry, God, Christ was purposely sent into, he was led into the into the wilderness by the Spirit. For what purpose? We see three times the tempter 
twisting the word of God to try to get Christ to give up what he was set to do. To get him off mission. To give him something that seemed more appealing. But Christ was faithfully obedient. And he never did what he should not have done. And he never did not do what he should have done. The only one ever that never had to go to confession and repentance. That is our Savior. And so that calling of God, as we see in the example of our Jesus Christ, gives great confidence in whatever God calls us to do, even in the seemingly little things in life. I think of Stephen, a deacon, deacon in the church, right? You don't get a sense that he was trying to write a biography and trying to get some kind of notice. He was trying to be faithful to the work that God called him to do, and he ends up being stoned to death. Who would do that? I'm, I'm, I'm helping do food distribution. <laughs> All of a sudden, you know, God calls him, you need to speak out against the religious leaders. And he does so because he's well-grounded in understanding Jewish and Hebrew history. And he's able to point out where their error was, where their leanings had gone wrong. And they picked up rocks. It seemed meaningless. It seemed unimportant. And yet we hold him up today as one of the great saints. As we sang today, right? The first martyr of the church. Don't, don't minimize the minimal things. Whatever God calls us to do, we do with, with God's power. Because God's calling is empowering. Calvin, Calvin again says, Satan is a murderer. And he's been so from the beginning. So he is also the father of lies. Whoever so, whosoever then wishes strenuously and constantly to spend his labor, labors for the church and for God must prepare himself for a contest with both. We must resist all fears and all intrigues. It's a, it's a uh, scary world out there. And we can't wait for the fear and scariness to subside in order to do what God calls us to do. Again, we're reminded from Josh Wilson's Dream Small song, the beginning, he's, he's talking about what is it that's important in the kingdom of God. Those are what we focus on, right? And don't worry about if it's big or little. Be willing to dream small. It's, it's the mama singing songs about the Lord. It's the daddy spending family time that the world says he cannot afford. It's a pastor at a tiny church, 40 years of loving on the broken and the hurt. It's these simple moments that change, change the world. Love God and others as yourself. Find little ways where only you can help. With His great love, a tiny rock can make a giant fall. So dream small. Think like Amos and understand God's mercy as incomparable. His message as relevant. 
and his calling has empowered. We need to understand that all people, all nations, are called to measure up to God's plumb line. It's there. He's standing. Right? Christ, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, says they will come and say, we, we know you, Lord. And he says, I don't know you. Depart from me. And we're re- reminded in the book of Revelation of the great right throne judgment. All who are dead, great and small, will stand and be judged on their works and see if their name is in the book of life. The plumb line is there every day and for eternity. But the good news is God extends his incomparable mercy to all people. Not only does he apply the plumb line, he extends his mercy. Right In that verse that we learned from the very youth, whoever believes will not perish. Right, John 3.16? If we believe, we will not perish. It's the living who daily enjoy the mercy of God. Those who are living by faith, we have to be careful not to become impatient and depressed because it's, oh Lord, come quickly, right? And those who are not living by faith need to receive that faith, need to heed God's word and not ignore God's mercy anymore. Today is the day of salvation. Because God's relevant message is that no one can meet the standard on their own. Only one has met that standard and is plumb. And that is Jesus Christ. We're reminded in the letter of Romans that there's none righteous, which Paul is just reiterating what Isaiah says, that we're unclean. Even our best works are filthy rags. But Christ empowers us by his spirit. Right? When the apostles, when the disciples received the spirit the day of Pentecost, they were empowered to faithfully pro- proclaim the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the only Savior of mankind. And so, as this faith is given to us by God, lives will be changed and the fruit of righteousness will be produced that measures up to God's plumb line. And that message is to preach Christ crucified. To those that are being called, it's a blessing. To those who are not, it's a stumbling block. So understand and enjoy God's mercy today. If you are in Christ, proclaim his message because the world needs to hear it. And do so in the power of God's spirit. May this truth abide in each of us as we abide in Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your incomparable mercy, your relevant message, and empowering call. Mercifully receive the prayers of your people who call upon you, and grant that we may know and understand what things we ought to do. And also may we have grace and power faithfully to accomplish them. In Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, and who taught us to pray. As Eric has said, and the theme throughout uh, Scripture, really, that uh, God is watching over us for good. 
And this food that's here today is like a well in the desert. When there is no hope for survival, it quenches and feeds the parched and it famishes. I'm sorry, it quenches and feeds the parched and famished soul. To be fed on Christ is to have meat indeed. To drink of the blood of Jesus is to possess the rivers of living water, which, if anyone drinks, he shall never thirst again. In Christ, our bellies are satisfied and our throats are quenched. For Jesus is a well of life for all who come to him in faith. Invited to the table are all those who are baptized or under the authority of Christ and his body, which is the church. But when we eat the bread, drink the wine together, we're acknowledging that we're sinners without hope except for that sovereign mercy of God. And we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So come and welcome to this table. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.